We're ready for Mark chapter 2, so if you would turn there. It says in verse 1, again, he entered Capernaum after some days, and it was heard that he was in the house. And immediately many gathered together so that there was no longer room to receive them, not even near the door. And he preached the word to them. Then they came to him, bringing a paralytic who was carried by four men. And when they could not come near him because of the crowd, the King James says because of the press. So, you you know, CNN's on the side and you can't get in because all the cameras and reporters and stuff. But that means, you know, it's an old English word for crowd. They couldn't come near him because of the crowd. They uncovered the roof where he was. So when they had broken through, they let down the bed on which the paralytic was lying. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven you. And some of the scribes were sitting there reasoning in their hearts, Why does this man speak blasphemies like this? Who can forgive sins but God alone? But immediately when Jesus perceived in his spirit that they, were re- that they reasoned thus within themselves, he said to them, Why do you reason about these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, arise, take up your bed and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, arise, take up your bed and go to your house. Immediately he arose, took up the bed and went out in the presence of them all so that all were amazed and glorified God saying, we never saw anything like this. I could imagine. So Jesus completes his preaching circuit, which he did at the end of chapter 1. He was one of the first circuit preachers. And he returns to Capernaum. He's preached in synagogues all around the region of Galilee. And he's cast out demons from many who were demonized. He's become very well known, so much so that scribes and Pharisees, this is those who are experts in religion, they come from Jerusalem to see what this is all about. Now Luke tells us in Luke 5.17 that there were Pharisees and teachers of the law sitting by who had come out of every town of Galilee, Judea, and Jerusalem. So this is a big crowd. It's like a religious leaders conference here. Check out Jesus. So everyone's aware that Jesus is in the house and the house is swamped with people. Everybody wants to be where Jesus is. People who become aware of who Jesus is today want to be where Jesus is. Now it's being where Jesus is in the spirit and not in the flesh. It doesn't matter where your flesh is. You can always be where Jesus is in the spirit. Ask those who are in prison in the body. I don't know if you got to see the VOM presentation on Friday evening, but there were three guys who had been in prison, uh, Turkey, Iran, and Sudan who gave their testimonies, and, and uh, it was a blessing. Two of those guys really sensed the presence of the Lord while they were in prison. One of the guys didn't, though. He was in prison for two years. That was Andrew Brunson, you know, the uh, guy who was in the news and visited the White House. And, but he, he didn't have a sense of the presence. Of, it didn't mean the Lord wasn't there with him, but he, he didn't sense the Lord's presence. He had to go entirely by faith. Uh, by the way, that... Those presentations, uh, I got an email saying those are still available to view. So if you go to the VOM site, you should be able to find uh, those testimonies there. They were a blessing. Uh, Hebrews 13, 5 and 6 says, we're told he will never leave us nor forsake us. 
So why should I fear what can man do to me? But Paul spoke of himself as the prisoner of the Lord when he was in the emperor's prison. So we're told Jesus is in the house. Well, whose house is it? Jesus doesn't have a house. He didn't have a house. Before he left Capernaum, he was staying at Peter's house. This is the only house we know of in Capernaum where Jesus stayed. He didn't have his own digs. He he told people he had nowhere to lay his head. So this is probably Peter's house. That's where he left Capernaum from. He comes back. We don't know. You know, it doesn't say Peter's house, so we don't. We can't say absolutely, but it's probably Peter's house. In any case, we never get the reaction of the homeowner concerning the events that occur. Uh, uh, wait, fellas, uh, don't. Uh, oh no, uh, never mind. <laughs> The house is full. It's surrounded by people. No one can get near the door. And Jesus is proclaiming the word to them. Then they come. This is the only identification we get of the fellows who were very determined to bring their friend to Jesus. They. No names. Just some guys. We know they act out of faith for their friend who is helpless. Someone has nicknamed these good friends. Sympathy cooperation, originality, and persistence. (laughs) Most of the people who received from Jesus were very determined. They did not give up easily. They usually did not give up at all. The Lord values persistence in seeking Him and in bringing our requests to Him. And we see this in the time of Jesus, and it's still true today. When Jesus was previously in Capernaum in chapter 1, after the Sabbath had ended, the entire city came to Peter's house bringing the sick and the demonized so that they could be healed or delivered. They were not deterred by the crowd. They didn't say, we'll come back when he's not so busy. They stayed until they could get to him. And unlike Elvis, Jesus apparently never left the building until every need was met. You know how people will stand in line for event tickets. Sometimes they'll camp out in the line. You know, they'll sleep there for days or nights. How foolish to stand in line and give up when you get to the front. You you can see the book ticket booth, but you can't see the future. How close are we? We can't see that. How close is deliverance? We don't want to be among those who say, this line is too long. This wait is too long. I'm going to give up. Or I've waited all this time and I've gotten the wrong answer. I'm quitting. We have need of persistence, endurance. It appears that the leper Jesus healed in chapter 1 did not observe the rules of the law in approaching Jesus. He was determined against all reason, we might say, to get to Jesus. We don't hear this man shouting, unclean. He was probably not observing the social distancing that, that lepers were required to keep. It says he came imploring Jesus and kneeling before him. And Jesus, when moved with compassion, reaches out his hand to touch him. That's pretty close. The leper did not know that Jesus would respond in that way, but he was determined to reach Jesus and ask if he would be willing to make him clean. And his faith was rewarded when Jesus said, I am willing, be cleansed. In later incidents, we also see people who are determined to get to Jesus. In Mark chapter 10, verse 46, we see the case of Bartimaeus. 
where it says, Now they came to Jericho, and as he went out of Jericho with his disciples and a great multitude, blind Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus, sat by the road begging. This is what he's always known as, as blind Bartimaeus. But he's, he's not blind after this, right? But he's still known as blind Bartimaeus. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many warned him to be quiet. But he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. What's well, Son of David? That's a messianic title. He was, he was calling out because he was saying, I believe Jesus is the Messiah. So Jesus stood still and commanded him to be called. And then they called the blind man, saying to him, Be of good cheer, rise, he's calling you. And throwing aside his garment, he rose and came to Jesus. Now, if he gets healed, he can find his garment again, right? <laughs> So Jesus answered and said to him, What do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabboni, that I may receive my sight. Then Jesus said to him, Go your way. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he received his sight and followed heart, or followed Jesus on the road. Bart is not deterred by those around him telling him to be quiet. They were probably not so polite. More like, shut up. We can't hear what's going on. He would not be silenced. When you're determined to come to Jesus, it does not matter what's going on around you. You will not be deterred. And Bart's faith is seen in his persistence. He would not give up and his faith was rewarded. We see also in Matthew chapter 15, starting in verse 21, the case of the Syrophoenician woman. This is someone who has no name. She's just a foreigner. Uh, Mark identifies her as someone from Canaan. In verse 21, it says, Jesus went out from there and departed to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a woman of Canaan came from that region and cried out to him, saying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. This woman knows stuff. She's calling him son of David. She's not even an Israeli. My daughter is severely demon-possessed. But he answered her not a word. You you go to Jesus to talk to him. You're talking to him, and he doesn't even... You pretend you're not there, you know, supposedly, or seemingly. He answered her not a word, and his disciples came and urged him, saying, Send her away, for she cries out after us. But she's persistent even in the face of no response from Jesus. And he answered and said, and finally speaks to her and says, I was not sent except to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. You know, you're outside Israel, you know, I'm not sure I can help. And she came and worshipped him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered again and said, It's not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the little dogs. Now, many Jews, Pharisees, and so forth, referred to Gentiles as dogs. It wasn't a nice terminology, you know. They would pray, Thank you, God, that I wasn't born a a Gentile woman. No, not a dog. I can't remember it all. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and he said, but he says to the little dogs, he's using this terminology like a family pet, a little, you know, a little puppy. Uh, he's not calling her a dog in that sense. So it's not good to take the children's bread, throw it to the little dogs. And she says, yes, Lord, but even the little dogs eat the crumbs which fall from their master's table. And it, Jesus answered her and said to her, O woman, great is your faith. 
Let it be to you as you desire. And her daughter was healed from that very hour. Again, we see a person who is determined and will not be easily deterred. She even seeks to persuade the Lord of her righteous cause, answering him back when he has as much as denied her request. A lesson again in not giving up, at least not giving up without an answer. And her persistent faith is rewarded. We also see the case of the woman with the flow of blood in Mark chapter 5 and in in other Gospels. She would be declared to be unclean due to her condition. She had a continual flow of blood from his body and this, this made her unclean. Similar to the leper, she was perpetually unclean. She was a social stigma. She reasons on the basis of faith if she could but touch the hem of Jesus' garment, she would be healed. She presses through the crowd. Mark says a great multitude followed him and thronged him until she can finally touch his clothes. This was not easy. It would have been easier to give up. She could have thought, it's probably just in my mind, nothing will happen anyway. But her faith is rewarded as she follows through with her quest. Jesus says, who touched me? Someone has pointed out that although a multitude of people thronged him, only one person really touched him. And you remember the disciples saying, what are you talking about? People are all around you and you're saying, who touched me? And he said, I felt power go out of me. Jesus also spoke a couple of parables that tell us how much God values persistence in prayer. Prayer is our means of touching Jesus or coming to Jesus. Uh, in Luke chapter 11, starting in verse 5, this parable about a friend in need, immediately after Jesus was teaching them how to pray, you know, our Father which art in heaven. And he says here in verse 5 to them, Which of you shall have a friend and go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves. For a friend of mine has come to me on his journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within and say, Do not trouble me. The door is now shut, and my children are in bed, are with me in bed. I cannot rise and give to you. I mean, you know, we're settled down for the night, and you want me to, you know, I'm going to disturb my kids. And I know you're my friend, but... We're not that close, friends. (laughs) I say to you, Jesus says, though he will not rise and give, give to him because he is his friend, yet because of his persistence, he will rise and give him as many as he needs. You sure three is enough. You don't need to come back tonight, right? (laughs) This is a contrast between the Lord and the friend who doesn't want to get up. It's not a comparison contrast because the Lord wants to meet those needs but we have to come to him he goes on in verse 9 and says so I say to you ask and it will be given to you seek and you will find knock and it will be open to you and this is a continual action so keep asking keep seeking keep uh, knocking for everyone who asks receives he who seeks finds to him who knocks it will be open if a son asks for bread from any father among you will he give him a stone Or if he asks for a fish, will he give him a serpent instead of a fish? Or if he asks for an egg, will he offer him a scorpion? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Your heavenly Father wants to meet your needs. And particularly, ask for the Holy Spirit. This is, Jesus says, you ask, you receive. 
And then the parable in Luke 18, uh, starting at the beginning of the chapter, the parable of the unjust judge. He spoke a parable to them that men always ought to pray and not lose heart. So we get the, you know, we get the purpose of the parable right here at the beginning, that men always ought to pray and not lose heart. Don't give up, in other words. Saying, there was in a certain city a judge who did not fear God nor regard man. Now, there was a widow in that city, and she came to him saying, get justice for me from my adversary. And he would not for a while, but afterward he said within himself, though I do not fear God nor regard man, yet because this widow troubles me, I will avenge her, lest by her continually coming she weary me. Now, if he was more unjust judge, he'd probably just have her shut up in prison somewhere or something. (laughs) And the Lord says, hear what the unjust judge said. And shall God not avenge his own elect who cry out day and night to him, though he bears long with them? You know, it may take a while. This is, again, a contrast, not a comparison. God's not an unjust judge. If we cry out to him, he'll respond. I tell you that he will avenge them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he really find faith on the earth? So men ought always to pray and not to lose heart or give up. The devil's desire is for us to give up. He hates the prayers of believers. He loves it when believers stop praying. God's desire is for us to be persistent in prayer and persistent in following hard after him. And following hard after him is a phrase, it's at least in the New King James in the Old Testament, it's, a, it's about uh, pursuing enemies in battle. They're following hard after them. They're, you know, they're pressing forward. The, love, the Lord loves for us to pound on his door at midnight. Of course, he doesn't sleep. Psalm 121.4, Behold, he who keeps Israel shall neither slumber nor sleep. So we don't have to worry about waking him up. We are also exhorted in the epistles to not give up or stop short because we do not see immediate results in our prayers or in our work. 1 Corinthians 15, 57 and 58 says, But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And in context, the victory is over death. Therefore, my beloved brethren, Be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. It's not futile. It's not empty. Galatians 6, 9, and 10, he says, Let us not grow weary while doing good, for in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. You see the need for patience and persistence. It's in due season that the reaping takes place if we don't give up, if we don't lose heart. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all, especially to those who are of the household of faith. And then Hebrews 10, 35 and 36 uh, encourages us. Therefore, do not cast away your confidence, which has great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that after you have done the will of God, you may receive the promise. Many places speak of patience and prayer, waiting upon the Lord looking to the Lord, etc. Now, I'm not saying that if you're persistent in prayer, you will always receive a positive answer to your request. I'm not the Lord. He's the one who's sovereign in healing, miracles, and all answers to prayer. 
But if you do give up, it's much less likely that you will receive what you're seeking. We see the example of Paul. He was persistent in prayer that God might remove the thorn that had been given him in his flesh. Second uh, Corinthians 12 is where you find that. The Lord answered him fairly quickly, only three prayers that he would not be granting that request. But we don't want to assume a no answer and stop short in our request. Give the Lord a chance to answer. He values persistence. There are historic instances of miners giving up when only inches, inches away from the vein of ore. And then another person would go into that particular mine and they would continue digging and, whoa, what's all this gold here, you know? I certainly don't want to discourage anyone in asking, seeking, and knocking. God is still a God who heals, a God who works miracles, a God who answers prayer in all ways. Keep on asking, seeking, and knocking until you receive an answer. It may be that your greatest need is to follow hard after Jesus, even if eventually he turns and says, as he did with Paul, my grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me, Paul says. He says, I take pleasure in infirmities and in reproaches in needs and persecutions in distresses. For Christ's sake, for when I'm weak, then I am strong. Paul says, in effect, good, I'm weak, so that I may depend upon his strength in me. It may be that often we carry on in our own strength and find that it is insufficient for the task. We need his strength, and we become aware of this in our weakness. Well, drawing near to him is always our greatest need. And whatever goads us to do so is beneficial if we respond as we should. Fellowship with Jesus is our greatest need. And he will place obstacles in our ways, in our way at times, to remind us of that fact when we're not fellowshipping with him, to get our attention, to turn us toward him and away from other pursuits, even pursuits that are not evil in themselves. Too many times when I encounter obstacles in my path, my eyes remain on the obstacles instead of being placed on the Lord. That's futile. It is true also that healings and miracles were ubiquitous in Jesus' earthly ministry for a reason. This was uh, the prophesied Messiah. This was the work that he was to be identified by. These works were shouting to Israel, Behold your Messiah. Healings and miracles are much less common today, even among those who say you simply have to name it and claim it. And that only leads to more frustration because it is not true scripturally. But we should not assume that God is not going to respond or that nothing is going to happen. We should examine the state of our faith, for the Lord definitely works through the faith of his people. If our expectations of the Lord are low, they very well may be met. It's like the pessimist who says, I try not to expect too much. That way I'm not disappointed. As believers, we should be some of the most optimistic people around. Not because we expect anything from this world, but because we know the one true God. And we know the good that he has for all believers now and in the future. The good God has prepared appears to be in the near future. This world appears to be accelerating rapidly into its final rebellious state before the coming of the Lord and his kingdom. 
But before the wrath of God poured out upon the earth, the church will be snatched away to be with him. And we can have joy in the midst of even of disaster because we know him. The future is bright, no matter how dark the night. Returning to our text, we see the persistent faith of these four men who come bringing a paralytic desiring that Jesus heal him. I think it's certain that they did not come for what Jesus does at first. They can't get near him, so they take a unique approach. I wonder if later some would say, here's what you need to do if you're a paralytic. First, get on the roof. We become so formulaic in getting God to act or trying to get him to act. But Jesus' life and actions resist standardizing. He healed in many different ways. And if we look to him, I think we will continue to be surprised in happy ways by his responses. So they take this man up on the roof and begin to dig through the roofing material to make a hole. Uh, David Guzik says the roof was usually accessible by means of an outside stairway and was made of thatch, dirt, or tile laid over beams. It could be taken apart and the friends of the paralyzed man lowered their friend down to Jesus. Another source says it was normally made of branches and rushes laid over the roof's beams and covered with dried mud. Thus one could dig through it or scoop it out, literally is what it's saying. They just dug, dug the stuff out of the roof and then broke through. A com- uh, another says it's a composition of mortar, tar, ashes, and sand spread upon the roofs and rolled hard, and grass grows in the crevices. G. Campbell Morgan comments on what it says, how they uncovered the roof. He says such a rendering is entirely misleading. The force of the word is that they broke up the roof of the house, tearing up the fabric in order to lower the man down on his pallet into the presence of Jesus. That takes some effort and some boldness. (laughs) People often use the roof as extra living space or a place to escape the confines of the house. Remember Peter going up on the roof in Acts chapter 10 uh, to seek the Lord and he was up there praying when he had this vision. This had to be a good-sized hole since they had to lower the man on his bed or caught below to Jesus horizontally. Uh, One person I was listening to said, you know, the the bed was most likely a soft mat kind of a situation. He said maybe they rolled him in it like a burrito and lowered him down, you know, so you don't have as big a hole. But I think they let him down, you know. I think they let him down horizontally. You know, you don't want your paralyzed friend to slide off the bed. (laughs) He might land on top of Jesus, and this would not be beneficial to your goal. If this is Peter's house, you can imagine the next time Jesus says, Hey, Peter, how about we have Bible study at your house tonight? Peter might say, What about John's house? He liked to know what God, Jesus was going to do with John. You know, so, what about John's house? We haven't been there for a while. I don't want to hog all the blessings, except he wouldn't have said hog, probably. Yeah. So this helpless man is now, after much effort, exactly where they wanted him to be, right in front of Jesus. Jesus has been healing everyone, so surely this is what will happen. But no, Jesus doesn't heal him. Unbelievable. He's been healing everyone. Instead, Jesus says, Son, your sins are forgiven you. What a letdown. A disappointment. 
His friends are like, no, we didn't bring him here for that. He's supposed to walk. There's an old song by Phil Keggy called Disappointment. And, uh, you know, I was kind of looking at it. It seems that it was written by someone as poem back in 1700s at some point. Uh, the, you know, the whole thing is worth uh, looking at, and you can find the lyrics online. But the first part it says, his appointment, or disappointment, his appointment, change one letter, then I see that the thwarting of my purpose is God's better choice for me. I remember Chuck Smith used to, uh, people be in his office talking to him, and he'd get a phone call and he'd answer it, you know. <laughs> and he'd say, well, you know, there aren't any interruptions with the Lord. It's, you know, if this is what God's planned, then I'm going to you know, do it. So. Well, that's nice, you know, to have your, fin- print, uh, your uh, sins forgiven, but what about the greater need? Ah, but this is the greater need. It's the greatest need that every man has. Until this need is met, no man has a greater need. To be in perfect health for centuries, like early in Genesis, but to not have forgiveness of sins is the greatest tragedy possible. David Guzik says, what good was it if the man had two whole legs and walked right into hell with them? Healing is not guaranteed, at least not in this life. But forgiveness of sins is guaranteed if you place your faith in Jesus Christ and his work of righteousness. His death upon the cross paid the price to purchase for you the forgiveness of sin, but it's only available by coming to him, by believing in him, trusting in him, and following him in your life. No one comes to him in genuine faith, seeking forgiveness of their sins, and is sent away empty. But this is the only place where this is available. It's an exclusive service. No one else can provide it. Others make claims to be able to save. Their ads are out there in the marketplace. But they are scams. Only God can forgive sins. And he only does so through Jesus the Messiah. Jesus deals with the man's greatest need first. He knows what an uproar this will produce. And he knows what he's going to do for the man physically. But first things first. The goal of this man's friends could be expressed as desiring that their friend be made whole. But this goes beyond the physical. Jesus doesn't want to do the job halfway. He wants to make men whole in every way. And the spiritual is first. The physical later. Everyone who is healed eventually died. If you're healed today, you remain subject to death in the future. But everyone who has their sins forgiven lives healed forever in the resurrection. Wiersbe says, forgiveness is the greatest miracle that Jesus ever performs. It meets the greatest need. It costs the greatest price. And it brings the greatest blessing and the most lasting results. But we're told that Jesus saw their faith. Whose faith? It's plural. So the assumption is the faith of the man's friends. And their faith is shown by their persistence in getting their friend to Jesus. There's no greater service a friend can do for a friend than bringing them to Jesus. But we do not want to leave out the man himself. What about his faith? He may have rang up his friends and said, I couldn't get to Jesus the last time he was in town. Or maybe he didn't want to or he didn't think Jesus would heal him or even see him. But I need to get there now. 
In any case, faith is involved in Jesus' pronouncement, Son, your sins are forgiven you. The man himself is likely being brought in faith since Jesus speaks to the sin issue first. A person's sins cannot be forgiven apart from faith in the Lord Jesus. So Jesus tells the man his sins are forgiven. No greater word can be spoken to any man. But those scribes who were present thought the word was blasphemous. They would never tell anyone that their sins were forgiven. And they were correct in that they did not have the authority. But Jesus does have the authority. They were amazed that he taught them as one having authority. He is the ultimate authority in partnership with the Father. Jesus spoke about this authority that he received from the Father. In John 12, verses 47 through 49, he says, If anyone hears my words and does not believe, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. He didn't come into the world to condemn the world, but that through him the world might be saved. He who rejects me and does not receive my words has that which judges him. The word that I have spoken will judge him in the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority. Jesus says this numerous times. But the Father who sent me gave me a command what I should say and what I should speak. In John chapter 5, verses 26 and 27, uh, speaking regarding the resurrection, Jesus says, For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself and has given him authority to execute judgment also because he is the Son of Man. And then in John 17, Jesus' high priestly prayer, verse 1, Jesus said, Jesus spoke these words, lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that your son also may glorify you as you have given him authority over all flesh that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. And this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God, in Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. John 7, verses 16 through 18, Jesus answers his critics and says, My doctrine is not mine, but him who sent me. Even the things I'm teaching with authority, they're not mine. If anyone wills to do his will, he shall know concerning the doctrine, whether it is from God or whether I speak from my own authority. The doctrine can be tested by doing what it says, and it will be confirmed to a person. If they want to test Jesus, they can test him. They'll find it's true. He who speaks from himself seeks his own glory, but he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him is true, and no unrighteousness is in him. And then, ultimately, in Matthew twenty-eight eighteen, before the Great Commission, Jesus comes after the resurrection, speaks to his disciples, and says, All authority, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth, not just here on earth. You know, Jesus said, as we'll say, um, you know, that you, that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Well, he doesn't just have authority on earth. He has authority in heaven and on earth. So Jesus tells this man that his sins are forgiven by God. Jesus is God. When Jesus says your sins are forgiven, he speaks with the authority of heaven. The religious leaders who are sitting by begin thinking that this is blasphemous. That is, 
speaking evil since only God can forgive sins. They are correct, of course. Not of the blasphemy, but of the fact that only God can forgive sins. Jesus is either God or a blasphemer. There is no third option. We can't say, oh, Jesus is wonderful, but he's just a good man. He is either good and God or one of the most evil men who ever lived because he was deceiving people. Only God can forgive sin in the heavenly courtroom because the offense is against God, against his holiness and righteousness, against his holy law. I may offend or harm my fellow man, but the ultimate offense is against God. It is his standard that's violated, not any man's. It is his standard to which we are held accountable. It is true that Jesus spoke in Matthew 18 about my brother sinning against me, and he gives instructions concerning reconciliation. Yet the offense is one against God first, and it is he to whom I must answer when I sin. If I'm forgiven by man and yet do not seek the forgiveness that only God can give, I'm lost. If I receive forgiveness from God but man refuses to forgive me and I should seek his forgiveness, then I am free of condemnation. In the case of David's sin with Bathsheba and Uriah, adultery and murder by war, including the deaths of others besides Uriah, we find Psalm 51 instructive. Verse 1, David says, Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is always before me. There's that confession of sin. Uh, we're saying if we walk in the light, you know, if we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. And so, David, I acknowledge my transgressions. This is, this is sin before you. That he, but he goes on to say, against you, you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight, that you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. We're all born sinners. Behold, you desire truth in the inward parts, and in the hidden part you will make me to know wisdom. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. And the whole psalm is worth going to as well. So David tells God, against you and you only have I sinned. We object, but David, you murdered a number of your own army. You committed adultery and had the woman's husband killed. But David is writing as moved by the Holy Spirit. In the truest sense, sin can only be committed against God. Others, may, others are negatively affected by my sin against God, but it's God's standard that is broken. It is his law that is being trespassed against. If there was no absolute standard of right and wrong, of righteousness and sinfulness, as many men claim, then there could be no sin. The relativist is left without a moral foundation. Ultimately, anything goes. As horrifying as man's actions against man can be, they are small in comparison to the actions against God's holiness. I think this is difficult for us to comprehend because we see man's violence and oppression every day in the news, sometimes in our own lives. 
but the offense against God is far greater. In fact, we will not be held to the standard of the men who have offended us or of whom we have offended. The standard of accountability is God's holiness, His righteous standard of pure holiness. When we sin and offend one another, it is God's law that is being broken, not the law of man. I may indeed be wronging you, but I'm breaking God's law. We see this truth reflected when the Lord Jesus talks about forgiving others. We're told that this is only right because others' offenses against offenses against us are far, far less than our offenses against God that he has forgiven us. He tells a parable of the unforgiving servant in Matthew chapter 18. We recall this servant owes his master uh, millions of dollars in today's terms. I don't know if anybody has seen the exact amount lately. It changes with you know inflation. You'd wonder how far how how this master could allow a servant to get that far in debt to him to begin with. I'm thinking Jesus must have looked into the future and down in the future he saw a member of Congress. <laughs> <coughs> So he's got this massive debt that he owes his master. His master says, pay up. And the guy says, I can't pay up. He says, well, I'm going to sell you and your wife and your children into slavery, so I'll get back some of my money at least. And the guy falls down and begs him, you recall. Be patient with me. I'll pay you all. I'll pay every last millionth of the dollars. And the master has compassion on him says, I'll, I'll forgive you the debt. And then this guy goes out. And sees one of his fellow servants who owes him a few bucks. And he says, pay up. I need my money right now. And the guy says, well, I don't have it right now. And so he has him thrown into debtor's prison in our terms. And you recall what happened. The master um, comes back and deals with that one who owed him so much because he would not forgive the small amount. And so... We see uh, Jesus telling us time, you need to um, forgive others. If you don't forgive others, your Heavenly Father won't forgive you. That's a, that's a command of the Lord that we forgive when we're offended. Our offenses, no matter how small they might seem to us even, you know, we were raised in church, we did good all the time. You know, we're, we're a sinner before God. So this highlights the fact that our sin is an offense against heaven and God's holiness and righteousness of a great magnitude beyond comparison. Some of our offenses against men and women are horrific and of a great magnitude. Yet in comparison to the offense against God, they are not nearly of such great magnitude. They are instead minuscule. We are certainly not to minimize the damage done by man against man. Let's recognize how great and horrific that is, but we must multiply them many times over, vastly magnify them to get an idea of sin's offense against our holy God. Who can forgive this great offense against God? God alone. Yet Jesus rightly takes it upon himself to speak the forgiveness of God toward this sinner. These religious leaders at the house object to Jesus' claim to be able to forgive sins, uh, but they do not say so. They only reason this in their hearts. Although they have only thought this, Jesus answers their thoughts. He asks them, why do you reason about these things in your hearts? Or why do you doubt my words? This is a mind blower for these men. 
they receive proof that they are in the presence of one who is more than a mere man and not a blasphemer. One can reason it away psychologically. Well, he saw them frown and he knew they were questioning his statement. And so, you know, he had a good basis for saying this. But the fact remains that he knew exactly what they were thinking without them expressing it in words. This proof of his person, Jesus offers to them. He says to them, so that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. On earth, because he is being submissive to the Father. So he asked them then, which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven you, or arise, take up your bed, and walk? It's been pointed out that one thing is as easy to say as the other. I can verbalize them both, as I just did. You can speak them both, one just as easy to do as the other. One has a couple more syllables than the other, at least in the English. I tried to sort it out in the Greek, but I wasn't young in Greek. So it's slightly more difficult, you know. This is the scribe reasoning. I've got to figure this out, which is harder to say. Neither one is any problem to say. But to speak either one with positive results is equally difficult. Both are impossibilities for man. Both are things that only God can do. To say both with positive results is equally difficult, but for God, doing either is equally easy. Neither one is any problem, no difficulty for God. Jeremiah 32, 27, uh, the Lord speaks, says, Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is there anything too hard for me? So as a proof of his first statement, your sins are forgiven, proof that that was effective, Jesus says to the paralytic man, Arise, take up your bed and go home. A total impossibility for this man. But this is why he was brought to Jesus. With God, all things are possible. These Jewish religious leaders who were present believed that disease and affliction were caused by a person's own sin. This was a common belief. God blesses the righteous. He curses the sinner. And we see that reflected in John 9, the the healing of the man born blind and the Religious leaders thought he was altogether conceived in sin and iniquity, but otherwise he wouldn't have been cursed like that. You know, he, you know, remember that his, the apostles asked him, who sinned, this guy or his parents, that he was born blind? Well, it had to be sin before he was born. You know. Well, by their reasoning, if Jesus can heal this man, then he must be able to forgive his sins. Right? Because your sins would have to be forgiven, they taught, before you could be healed. Henry Morris says, indirectly, sin in the world is the root cause of disease. If Jesus, by his own power, can heal, he can also forgive. We don't know how long this man was afflicted, but if it has been for any length of time, he would not only be incapacitated, but his muscles would also have atrophied. His joints and bones would be affected. There's major work here that has to be done. It is like the case with the man we will meet later who has a withered arm and Jesus commands him to stretch out his hand. This is the very thing he's been unable to do. But as he begins to do so, he finds that he can. As this man begins to obey Jesus' command, he finds he can move. He has strength. He can not only stand, but can also pick up and bear his bed to his house. I'm not sure I would want to fully obey Jesus' command if I were this man. 
I would want to arise and I could carry my bed, but I'd want to move to a corner or somewhere to stay where Jesus was. You know, go outside the door and turn immediately left and listen. It was probably difficult for people to even make a path for the man to leave the house. Maybe this man was concerned that if he did not fully do what Jesus said, his healing would not last. We don't know. But I don't think Jesus would fault him if he were to hang around. We are told he went out in the presence of them all so that all were amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. That's an understatement. But what can you say? A huge crowd is witness to this miracle and to the fact that Jesus can forgive sins as only God can do. If you've never come to Jesus so that your sins might be forgiven, now is the time to do so. I don't know of anybody here who has not done that. We don't typically give an, an, an altar call. A lot of times we allow time for questions or comments. This is your opportunity if you've never done that. If you have sins between you and God that you need to clear up, have forgiven, this is an opportunity to do that. So uh, certainly if you desire prayer, we'll pray for you, with you.